and welcome to the first Talking Finance for 2018. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week, we're talking to Mark Kenny, the National Affairs Editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, to run us through how the government is starting the year and what's happening in politics. And we also talked to Deanna Messina, Senior Economist at AMP Capital, to see how the markets have started the year. Also, Kate Hickey, Australian and New Zealand economist from Capital Economics, goes through the latest jobs data and also the strong start to the year for consumer confidence. And finally, Adrian Loveney, CEO of NPP Australia, explains the big new change to Australia's payments technology that's set to be introduced just after Australia Day. Joining me now is Mark Kenny, the National Affairs Editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Well, Mark, we've started the year in politics with the usual uh, debate about uh, Australia Day, um, uh, changing, possibly changing. That seems to be what's focusing everyone's mind. But, but, but underneath it all, what, uh, how do you think um, uh, the government has begun, uh, begun the, uh, the new year? Well, look, as you say, it's pretty early, uh, pretty early going, really, and we haven't seen any kind of serious political activity. But there is a fair bit of heat around this discussion of the date of Australia Day, and it's sort of divided along left-right lines, if not along sort of party lines. Labor at the moment is is sitting pat, really, kind of arguing a nuanced case where it's saying, you know, the, the, the date of Australia Day does... Uh, you know, create some insensitivities and it needs to be handled carefully, but it's not backing a change. And the government, the coalition, is uh, very firmly behind January 26. Um, but nonetheless, I think as this uh, happens every year, it seems to be getting uh, ahead of steam. It seems to be getting more energy, this case, for moving the date. Uh, and uh, so that that probably goes some way to explaining it. In some ways, it's a, you know, it's a holiday, a summer story, Um wouldn't get quite as much air uh, at other times of the year, but um, but I think there is uh, some growing substance in this, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do see uh, Labor firm up its position um, now that the Greens have done so, not just to cover off the Greens, but because I think there is uh, a growing kind of social momentum behind this. Yeah, it'd probably go away on January the 27th, though, don't you think? Well, I think it will, but I don't think it'll go away for good. I think uh, it will it will continue to hang around. I mean, we've seen a few councils changing their uh, uh, the, the, you know the, their um, citizenship ceremonies and so forth um, to as, as a sort of an active step here. And I think that bearing in mind, uh, if you look at the broader context of this, you know the the, uh, the country has not seen its way clear to any sort of uh, constitutional recognition of the first peoples. And we've had the Prime Minister recently strike down the aspiration of having an Aboriginal advisory body or an Indigenous advisory body. Uh, and so, you know, those are both, those both would have been active steps towards reconciliation. Uh, this, on the other hand, is a, seems to be uh, emerging as a step in the other direction, the, the, the sort of steadfast commitment to hang on to January 26, when there is this growing, growing momentum and when you're not doing those other things, it, you know, does threaten, I think, to become socially divisive. And uh, so I, my feeling, I've sort of changed my view on this over time, but my feeling is that this, um, I mean, we're only talking about something that's a symbol anyway, but I think it is symbolically important because it, uh, it does go to what modern Australia's attitude is to the original inhabitants. You made a fairly uh, firm call just before Christmas that there won't be a midterm challenge to Malcolm Turnbull. Um, 
barring a sharp deterioration in the polls. But what if he gets to the magic 30, 30 negative um, or losing news polls? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I, um, I Look, if you'd asked me this uh, 12 months ago, I would have said if he gets to 30 news polls, his position becomes you know, pretty close to untenable. Now I think there's a, a um, uh, you know, as, as that 30 news, negative news polls looms, I think there's a, uh, a recognition that the government is, you know, skimming skimming along under under 50%, um, but that it only needs to get to sort of 48%, you know, 48, 52 uh, as it nears the election and figures it can claw back that, uh, that uh, extra bit in the election. That's certainly been done in Australian politics in the past. So there's no no real sense of uh, panic. There's, a, there's no sense of um, uh, an imminent change. And I think there's more just a sense that uh, if the government is to hang on, it's going to be a, uh, a long road between here and the election and any recovery will be incremental at best rather than some sort of sudden reversal. I think that 30 news poll marker is is um is looming as a kind of a clear and present reality if not a clear and present danger to Malcolm Turnbull's leadership when does it happen i think it it depends of course on when the australian publishes its news polls but my uh, my understanding is that sometime in april uh, would uh, probably get it to um 30 news polls and uh, assuming the pm hasn't had some sort of summer recovery which i don't think you can completely rule out because sometimes um our politicians are so sort of unpopular that when they go away for a while over summer, their popularity actually climbs just simply because they're not in people's faces and people forget the reasons, you know, voters might forget the reasons they, uh, they're a bit angry with the government or don't like that's seeing a, someone, don't like Scott Morrison's face or whatever. That's a sobering reflection. So you never know. He could, that's, that's a sobering <laughs> idea. It is. It is. Uh, so, uh, so we might come out of the summer period with the government uh, perhaps uh, picking up a point or two. When does the election have to be? Well, the election has to be uh, sometime in you know by mid twenty nineteen. Um, some of my colleagues uh, believe that it's going to be this year, and I think that's actually a possibility. But it goes, I think, to to those polls. Um, as you know, there's a rule in politics, uh, rule of thumb, which is you know you go when you think you can win. Uh, so while I think Turnbull's talking about going full term, which would get into uh, you know it'd have to be before. Um, before June of next year, I think. Uh, but um, uh, if he if he does have some sort of uh, unforeseen recovery in the polls through this year and he's getting toward the end of this year in, in a strong position, I think he'd probably uh, chance his arm then rather than uh, rather than wait to go full term. But as things stand, um, it, it's Labor's to lose, isn't it? Yeah, well, you'd say so. Um, the uh, certainly on the on the trend lines of the polls, you'd have to say, well, how can how can the coalition come back from here. But as you know, the economy has picked up uh, to some extent. There's been solid jobs growth. Um, unemployment remains low. Uh, there's, uh, you know, green shoots, of course, in the global economy. Um, the, the revenue coming to the government may pick up if the government does have tax cuts planned. I don't think it'll get a huge dividend from that, but nonetheless, it's something positive to talk about. So, a number of things could coalesce uh, for the government. And I think being a sort of a seesaw game that it is, a, a kind of a binary um, equation politics, if the government starts doing better, then I think some pressure may come uh, internally on Bill Shorten. There's already a, a sort of a consciousness within Labor that, well, he's done very well and Labor's done very well to be consistently ahead. 
Shorten himself is, uh, is, is, you know, fairly low on the popularity stakes. So I don't think it's out of the question uh, that uh, some pressure could swing back on to Labor this year. And if that happens, you know, that can have an effect on, uh, on perception. Well. Uh, and as we learned in 2001, things can come out of a blue sky, such as Tampa and uh, 9-11, that... Um that can change things entirely. So who knows what happens? Yeah, that's right. And that, that and that, what we saw there was the um, was the, the influence of big events and the advantages of incumbency, particularly in the hands of a very very skilled politician. Now, I think there are some significant doubts about Malcolm Turnbull's political skills. Um, he's certainly a um, an effective communicator when he wants to be. But uh, if, yeah, as you say, if events uh, took place that uh, uh, changed the political calculus, then if Turnbull's good enough, he can capitalise on that and, um, and uh, things can change. Joining me now is Diana Musina, the senior economist at AMP Capital, working for Shane Oliver. Well, Diana, um, uh, AMP Capital's had a pretty positive view of global growth. The share market has been what you'd call indecisive, I guess, in Australia as the year begins. Um, do you still hold to the view that um, things look pretty positive this year? Well, there's a difference going on between what's happening in the Australian local share market and what's happening globally. The global share market, particularly in the US, has had a really good start to the year. And it has been surprising. We've been thinking for some time now that the US market is due for a correction. And a lot of the indicators that we use within our process uh, to think about uh, markets in general have been suggesting that sentiment has run up too high, that valuations look too stretched in the US market, and we have been expecting a pullback. And that hasn't really happened yet. And part of the key reason for why that hasn't happened is because it seems that corporate, the, the corporate reporting season has been taken even more positively than what investors were expecting. And part of the reason for that is down to uh, what companies are saying the corporate tax cut or how the corporate tax cut will affect them. So they've been talking quite positively about the outlook uh, thanks to the corporate tax cut. So we might see a bit more upside for US shares in the next month or so, uh, but ultimately we still see the risk of a correction. In the risk of a correction, we think that the Australian market would fare uh, a lot better. Uh, and and that's ultimately because we still have a positive view on earnings growth in Australia. Well, also because the Australian market hasn't gone up as much. That's right. I, I, we, we, we still think that Australian shares will lag the rest of the world this year. Earnings uh, growth forecasts aren't as strong in Australia as they are for countries like the US, Japan or the Eurozone. And we still have a lot of issues that need to be worked through in Australia for our economy. So we still see the Australian economy performing under its potential this year, whereas we're much more positive on the global outlook. In terms of the large caps, though, that in, in one way comes down to the difference between globally focused firms, such as the big miners and some of the um, some of the manufacturers that are global and, and mm. companies like CSL and so on, and also the the domestic versus the domestic focused stocks such as the banks um, mm. and so the the market as a whole is in a sense an average between global companies such as BHP and Rio Tinto and uh, the domestic ones like the banks 
The concentration in the Australian market is definitely uh, one of the risks for for Australian equities, and it it has been the reason for why we were underperforming in 2017. We still think that there are structural issues for the banks to work through, although they it it does look like uh, they're looking a little bit underpriced at the moment because we don't see the risks of a big downturn in the housing market here or a big downturn in, in credit growth. So that should support the banks in the longer run. Uh, for the big mining companies, they've had a very good upgrade to earnings and the strength in the iron ore price really over the past few months is positive for the near term. But overall, we still see a lot of risks to the iron ore market. There's still plenty of supply that's coming online. A lot of that's coming from Australia. And the Chinese economy will continue to slow. That's been a key thing that policymakers in China have been talking about. So we don't see as much upside uh, for the iron ore-related mining companies. We do see a lot of upside for energy-related companies globally, though. And uh, that's been a really good story in January. And what about interest rates uh, and interest rate-related stocks? Um, we, we seem to be obviously in a, uh, a new cycle of rising interest rates. Uh, perhaps not in Australia for a while, but um, the US hiked the Fed funds rate in uh, December. But more importantly, perhaps bond yields are rising, uh, particularly in the US, but globally. Um, what do you think that means for yields and income stocks in Australia? Well, we think that global yields are going to head higher this year, and we thought that uh, they would they they would have ended 2017 stronger than what they did. So. There's, uh, there's more upside on that this year. The key reason for why we see global yields head, heading higher is because we think that the market is underpricing the risk of inflation. Um, the market pretty much gave up on the risk of inflation in, in, in 2017. Uh, and that's starting to play out again. We've seen some weak wage growth numbers out of the US. The consumer price numbers were uh, good, but I still think that the market is underpricing the risk of of higher inflation this year. So we see global yields heading higher, particularly in the US, and we're also starting to see that happening in Europe and the Eurozone, uh, sorry, in the Eurozone and Japan, uh, because the central banks there do look like they're becoming a little bit more hawkish, even though they're not removing their current monetary policy stimulus programs. They are talking about the potential uh, of moving away from very, very easy money. So with rising global yields, we have a negative view on the bond yield sensitive asset classes such as global listed real estate and global listed infrastructure. Uh, and we think that those sectors will underperform this year and we think that equities will um, be a much better story. And how much of a headwind do you think it'll be for the banks? Well, the impact on the banks is uh, slightly mixed. Generally, global yields or an increase in interest rates tends to be quite positive for the banks. And that's something that looks like will be uh, an important story for Japan this year. The Bank of Japan is still running a very stimulatory monetary policy program because their inflation rate is still well below the 2% target. It's currently at about 0.3%. So they're still a long way away from reaching that target. But their uh, yield control policy, which has been trying to keep longer run yields at, at about 0% uh, has been hurting some of the financially sensitive areas like the bank. So they're trying to 
slowly increase uh, the yield on the longer end, and that should be a, and that should be a positive for financial stocks. I'm joined now by Kate Hickey, who's the Australian and New Zealand economist for the global firm Capital Economics. Continued strong employment from the uh, data from the ABS today. What uh, what was your impression overall? Yeah, so December's labour market figures were another strong result and really rounded off a stellar year for the labour market. Employment growth was particularly strong and it seems like the strong labour market has attracted more people back into the labour force, which explains why the unemployment rate ticked up a touch to 5.5%. And um, uh, I suppose the good news is that uh, most of the jobs are full-time. Yeah, so uh, December was... Uh, part-time jobs were actually stronger than full-time, but for 2017 as a whole, the majority of jobs created were full-time. Which is a big turnaround from what's been occurring in the past uh, couple of years before that, which was all part-time work. Yeah, there's been a real shift in the trend. So as you say, since about 2012, the majority of jobs created were part-time, but uh, 2017 was a break from that trend, with 75% of jobs created being full-time ones. And how encouraged should we be you know, about what that means for the economy, do you think? It certainly is encouraging, uh, but it's also worth saying that um, the underemployment rate, which captures those people who are working uh, part-time but would like to work more hours, is still fairly high. So we've seen some improvement because of that strength of full-time work, but there's still this pool of labour that would be willing to work more hours, and that's what's sort of holding wage growth down at record low levels. And that's still occurring, isn't it? I mean, and that's uh, in fact that's a global phenomenon. Your firm around the world must be seeing that pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So even in economies like the US and the UK, where the uh, labour market is closer to full capacity, we're still seeing that wage growth is remaining uh, surprisingly low. There seems to be global trends like globalisation and technology, which uh, have changed the relationship between uh, the capacity in the labour market and wage growth. The other thing we've seen in the last couple of weeks as the year begins is a big surge in consumer confidence. Yeah. What do you put that down to? It's actually it's probably linked to the labour market strength. So um, there's certainly things working against the household sector. You know, we've seen petrol prices are quite high. And as I said, wage growth is still low. But this uh, exceptional year for the labour market seems to be filtering through. Uh, in the Westpac survey that you mentioned earlier in the week, the uh, unemployment uh, sub-index of that was particularly strong. It was, and um, mm. um, yeah, in fact, the one I saw, the other one I saw was the ANZ Roy Morgan one, uh, yeah. which was at a four-year high, up about ten percent in just a couple of mm. months. It's probably worth saying that uh, the ANZ measure isn't seasonally adjusted for the usual bump that we see in January, but there's uh, no avoiding the fact that consumer confidence has certainly rised. Uh, risen, sorry. Everyone feels good in January with a tummy full of uh, Christmas cheer, I guess. Exactly, yeah. Um, The other thing that your firm's done quite interestingly lately, and I don't know if you were involved in this, was um, a big piece-headed Bitcoin, how excited or worried we should be. And I just wonder, what was the answer? How how worried, excited should we be? Yeah, so I wasn't personally involved with it, but uh, the view of my colleagues is that while the uh, sort of the Bitcoin itself looks like it's a bit of a bubble, there's potential with the sort of blockchain technology more generally uh, in uses outside currency. So it looks like it could improve trade financing, for example. Uh, so we're we're worried about Bitcoin potentially being a bubble, but the technology around it seems like it's going to uh, shape 
uh, growth of the future. I actually thought it was quite significant that a serious firm, economic firm like Capital Economics was uh, was doing a piece on it. Yeah, it just highlights um, how much interest has sort of been around Bitcoin itself, but also, as I say, this uh, blockchain technology. Just back to the uh, Australian economy, what do you think mm. we should be looking out for in the next few weeks? What What are the things that you're going to be focused on? So we're definitely looking at how the household sector is going to shape up. So as you mentioned, the data that's come through so far this year has been fairly encouraging. Retail sales uh, bounded ahead in November and consumer confidence has been high. So we're sort of curious to find out whether that's just the usual ebbs and flows of the data or whether there really has been an improvement in the household sector. I'm joined now by Adrian Loveney, the CEO of NPP. Now, NPP, Adrian, stands for New Payments Platform. Uh, it was formed in right, uh, 2013, I think, by 13 shareholders, including the big four banks and um, uh, so it's just, it's, and, and also the Reserve Bank and a few others. But just tell us, uh, what was the plan back then and um, what, what prompted uh, the formation of NPP? So uh, Australia's payment system um, that people use, um, you know, on an everyday basis, putting aside the, the card-based systems, the, you know, the, the big international card schemes, the, the Australia's payment system um, that, that people use to, 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 to pay their mum and dad or pay their rent or pay their businesses or, or receive dividend payments um, is about 50 years old. Um, it works well. Um, but it's of a different era. It was designed, um, you know, physically, literally around the concept of tape exchanges. So, um, you know, a, a group of people would get together in Martin Place and exchange the transactions that occurred um, the day before, and then they'd be kind of uh, they'd appear into your, in your account, um, you know, the next morning. So, very much a, a batch-driven system. Um, so, transactions would be stored up for a day and then kind of released overnight. Um, not very data-rich. So, so your your listeners would be familiar with you know the, the, the task of having to try to construct something a, a meaningful message within the available 20 characters uh, and it only works kind of Monday to Friday it doesn't, doesn't work on public holidays so it's not the kind of payment system um, that Australians need um, as we you know as, as we're in the middle of a 24/7 uh, digital economy the Reserve Bank um, as it often does and, and as it has um, you know in other you know, other jurisdictions around the world where these systems operate, because payments is a, is a network business, um, you know, and you've effectively got a bunch of competitors who all have to work together and synchronise their actions at the same time in order to deliver a, a benefit to end users, the Reserve Bank kind of provoked the banking industry into action and said, we think this system needs to be refreshed. Uh, and we've spent the last four years building it. It'll go live uh, in, in the next month or so. Will uh, will we notice any change? I mean, will I, when I do a transaction, say on BPay or something, will it be different when I do it? So the, the change is likely to be gradual. It'll 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 kind of roll out over a month or so, and that's generally the way these systems are introduced. There's not a big kind of switch on, so consumers will start to see the service, um, you know, probably in their mobile banking application or in their internet banking application. Um, uh, in many cases. Um, the, the payments that you send today, if you if you use the kind of pay anyone feature in your internet banking, would automatic will automatically go through a, a new service called OSCO, 
uh, and those payments will be uh, will be cleared and settled generally in, in in around 30 to 60 seconds. So that'll be that'll be uh, you know one of the first things that people see. One of the other things that that your listeners will see. Um, you know, probably in the next kind of six weeks or so, is that they'll be invited to uh, create a pay ID. Now, today, if I want to pay you money, I need to know your BSB and your account number, uh, and and you know that those numbers will continue to exist. But 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 customers can choose to create a pay ID, which is a memorable. A unique identifier that, that they own, so their mobile phone number or an email address, or if they're a business, maybe their ABN or ACN, uh, and you'll be able to link that number to your bank account. Um, and the added benefit that Pay ID um, provides, apart from being easier to remember, um, is that if I if I choose to pay somebody via their Pay ID, then I'll know who I'm paying before the payment goes through. So if I key in your mobile phone number into my mobile bank into my internet banking, I'll get a message that says, "Do you want to pay, you know, $180 to Alan Kohler?" And I'll hit, "Yep, that's the person I want to pay." So it'll 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 give consumers added assurance that the person that they're paying is the person they want to pay. Now, it occurs to me that, um, uh, as you say, that you know the old payment system, 50 years old, time to refresh it, but um, technology is accelerating now. And in fact, uh, since since NPP was started in uh, 2013, um, the, the world's suddenly been swamped by blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and everyone's kind of talking about how um, Ripple or Ethereum are going to transform the global payment system. Is there some concern that uh, by the time all this happens, it's going to be well, it's going to not not going to be superseded immediately, but eventually, you know, it's going to be superseded by uh, by blockchain in some way. So I think that blockchain and distributed ledger technology is is, is going to be really useful as a, as a as a clearing mechanism or as a kind of proxy for for ownership of a of a, of a physical asset. Um, but but ultimately, I think um, for, for the near future, at least consumers you know are going to want their value to be stored in a regulated institution, one that's regulated prudentially, uh, and 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 I often one on which they receive um, uh, you know interest. So uh, you know I think that that DLT. Um, as a technology platform, um, uh, you know, is going to be useful and is going to be used in a wide range of industries to 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 to, to speed up processes and to reduce cost. Uh, but I think that fiat currencies or currencies that are kind of guaranteed by the Reserve Bank of Australia are going to be around for a while yet. Right. So you don't think you've been wasting your time? No, I don't think so. And look, in in some senses, the technology that we're using, um, you know, borrows in a number of respects from you know. Distributed um, technology, so that the, the, the provider that, that we've chosen and that we've worked with to build this system um, is, is, is Swift, uh, which is which is well known, um, you know, around the world for kind of moving money between banks, and they've built us a unique system for for, for the NPP in Australia. But but it doesn't actually have a central hub. Uh, it doesn't actually have a central switch. It's actually a um, if you like, a kind of round robin. So there's a series of distributed nodes that each of the banks, including the Reserve Bank, will have. Uh, you know, in our view, uh, and Swift's view, was that a distributed system um, will increase performance and increase resilience and will mean that, you know, if, if one or two banks, you know, have issues, um, you know, maybe that, you know, kind of lost power or, you know, had floods to their data centres, as we see occasionally, then the rest of the system will just kind of continue without them. So, um, you know, in some senses, we are borrowing uh, distributed bit of technology and applying it to our use. 
So, so has Swift built you something that's absolutely world leading? Um, have you been able to afford the best in the world, or have you had to compromise in some ways? So, I think one of the one of the benefits of coming in the middle of the pack is that you get to kind of look at what everybody else has done and borrow the best ideas. Um, there's a there's an organisation, a software vendor organisation called um, FIS that publishes an annual report which which looks at all of these different real time payment systems around the world, and there are currently 26 that are either operating or being planned. Um, and they set out a series of kind of 10 criteria that the world's leading real time payment systems have. Uh, and Australia's system, when it goes live, uh, will have all of them. Uh, so it'll be genuine. It'll be genuinely kind of world uh, world leading uh, when it launches. Some of the things that are that are interesting about the Australian model um, uh, that that are, that are kind of uh, at the forefront of the pack is that that every single transaction uh, will be settled in central bank money in real time. Um, you know, which is which is not so important for small value transactions, but but conceivably, if this thing is going to be used to settle. Um, you know, million million dollar purchases. It's it's good in removing liquidity risk between counterparties. Um, uh, the choice of the data standard is also um, uh, uh, unique in that we've chosen to use the ISO 222 data standard, which is a rich um, XML-based data standard that can be used by businesses to send lots of data and information to each other. So while the service that we're launching, um, you know, in a, in a couple of months' time, uh, you know, is, is for retail transactions, conceivably um, this same platform can be used for things like, um, you know, real estate transactions, stock exchange transactions, um, uh, electronic invoicing, uh, utilising that rich data capability. And the third thing that's interesting about the Australian model, um, you know, which again is unique, is that we've separated the infrastructure and the product layer. So what we're building now and what we're launching uh, is the infrastructure, or if you like, the, the, the set of rails um, that will connect all of the banks, including the reserve banks. Uh, and then what will sit on top of that um, are a series of products that can use that infrastructure and deliver customer experiences. And the first one that we're launching is OSCO, but there'll undoubtedly be, be new services that will come later. They could be delivered by banks, they could be delivered by fintechs, they could be delivered by insurance companies, um, they could be delivered by government. So, um, so you know, is, your, is, your platform, is your platform uh, what you might call open source in some way? Open access, absolutely. Open access. So the rules so, that we and so other so the develop, rules that we operate, other firms will be able to develop uh, uh, systems and services to go on top of it. Yes, that's right. Mm. Well, fascinating. It's a whole new era for payments. Yeah, look, it's um, it's certainly uh, a lot of work that's uh, gone into it over a number of years. Um, it's been thoroughly tested uh, and, and exercised to within an inch of its life, as you'd expect for a, for a piece of critical infrastructure, and we're um, looking forward to rolling it out to Australians um, from February onwards. Just finally, can you tell us how much it's cost to build? Uh, so, you know, media reports have suggested it's uh, north of a billion dollars, and, and that's, that's, that's pretty accurate. Right. Well, you'd be the one who knows. I mean, I think obviously there's a, there's a bunch of money that we've spent uh, in the middle to build the system, and then banks have obviously made their own investment around the edges um, to, to 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 kind of bring that to life. And and I I don't have an exact grasp on those numbers, but but certainly I think a, a billion dollars plus is the right number. And very sadly, rest in peace, Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer of the Cranberries, who died aged just 46 this week. Here's one of my favourite songs by the Cranberries. Linger. You got me wrapped around your finger. Do you have to let it linger? Do you have to 
That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing us at hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler. Do have a constant week and, of course, a constant year. Thank you.